0: The reading is taken from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, and beginning to read at verse 12. This can be found on page 1179 in the Church Bibles. Paul writes to the Christians in Philippi, Therefore, my dear friends, As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Right, thank you, Peter. And uh, good morning again, everyone. Congratulations again uh, to Rob and Hayley. And um, taking that baptism just took me back to the baptism of my own children. Harry was baptized just earlier this year, Clara two years earlier. And it also took me back actually to um, when I was first a godparent. And this was actually quite a long time ago. And uh, back in uh, 2003 in London, my godson is called Isaac, my first godson. And um, I moved away soon after that, so I didn't see him very often afterwards. Um, but uh, a couple of years later, um, they invited me over, came down from Oxford to uh, visit him. And they told me he'd l- he started talking. And I thought, well, this is very exciting. I can't wait to meet Isaac now he can talk. I'm going to have to get him to know him so much better. So uh, this was a much anticipated event. And um, it, what was clear when I arrived was that they had been explaining to Isaac who I am. And uh, I think they'd said to him, Tom is one of your godparents. Isaac sort of took this on board. And, um, but it's quite a difficult concept, isn't it, really, for a two-year-old. And it also sounds a little bit like grandparents, Don't you agree? So anyway, they they didn't know Isaac was confused. But uh, the moment came. I knocked on the door. The door swung open. They invited me in. There was Isaac waiting for me. And they said, Isaac, who's this? To which he answered, Grand God. (laughs) (laughs) His elder sister soon adopted this name as well. So for several months, I was Grand God. After that, sadly, it didn't stick. But there we go. Isaac's now 13, and he calls me Tom. But I do need to tell you that we do have a grand God, and it's not me. And we do have a grand calling. And today we're going to look at what that calling is. What does it mean to be a Christian? And what does God call us to? And here are the two phrases from the passage we've just heard read that I'm going to be unpacking in doing that. You can see them on the screen. The first one, continue to work out your salvation. And then there's the objective, the goal in verse 15, that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. I don't know if we're in a warped or crooked generation. Some would say we are, some would say we're not. But we're still called to the same thing to be blameless and pure. And in unpacking all of this, I'm really going to make three points or address three essential questions and they're on the screen now. What is salvation? How do we work it out? And why should we want to? So that's where we're heading, but let me first pray for us all. Father God, thank you for the privilege of witnessing the baptism of Stanley, the privilege of joining with your people, the privilege of being able to call ourselves sons and children of God. But Father, we know that it is only through what you've done for us through Jesus that we can have that name. It's only through what you've done for us that we can have that status, only through what you've done for us that we can have the hope of eternity with you. Lord, would you help us today to understand how we can Receive those things for ourselves. How we can live as you call us to live. And how we can too shine as stars in the universe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so first then, what is salvation? A bit of a churchy word, but actually it's a word that most of us understand. If you look in any dictionary, which I did online, it will tell us that it's being saved from something bad, something ruinous, something we really don't want. And uh, the life jacket there really captures that sort of sense, doesn't it? It's a dramatic word. And what the Bible is talking about when it uses that word is separation from God. That's the thing we don't want. A broken relationship with our Creator. But to understand the reasons why we are all naturally separated from Him, we need to understand two essential things. Number one, that God is totally holy. He is the source of all goodness, all purity, and all truth. And actually that makes sense. If God is God, He must be like that, mustn't He? And then secondly, the other thing we need to know is that we Every human being are not. Sure, we're capable of many, many good things, and all of us, and we've seen many, many good things done by one human to another. But at the end of the day, we all fall short of being the truly loving, the fully loving, the fully passionate, compassionate, unselfish people that we're capable of being, of fulfilling the potential that God has given to us We all fall short of that potential for goodness. And the Bible calls that sin failing to be all that God has called us to. The consequence of that, of those two things, is that there is naturally a barrier between us and God. We're not in right relationship with him. That's the bad news. But the Bible is wonderful because straight after the bad news comes the good news. Not only is God holy, but he is also a God of complete love and of complete mercy. Hold those things together and God was compelled to do something about it, to address that barrier. He knew he needed to remove it somehow and the way he did that was by sending Jesus, the one perfect human being, to live the perfect life, to pay the penalty that we deserve, to die in our place and to remove that barrier if we choose to accept that gift for ourselves, for every one of us, so that we can be forgiven. We can be reconciled with our Father God who loves us so much. How did Jesus do it? By dying on that cross. Jesus said himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And the proof that it had worked was when he rose from the dead, we celebrate that at Easter, and it confirmed that the price had been paid. It meant we could be forgiven. Our relationship with God could once again be restored. We could be his friends. We could be his adopted children. And that is the greatest news the world will ever hear. The Bible calls it the gospel, which simply means literally that, great news. And the best news of all is that it's absolutely free. We don't need to do anything. We don't need to pay anything to receive it. All we need to do is accept that gift of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, to put our faith in it, to thank God for it, to decide to follow Jesus, to put him in the centre of our lives, to live in relationship with him and to live as Jesus taught us to live. We don't live that way in order to earn that forgiveness, to earn that relationship. We do it as a response of gratitude for all that he has given to us. It's not about what we do for him. It's about what he has done for us. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And if we've received that, if we've made that decision, received and opened that gift, well, then we have the promise of heaven of an eternity spent with him, a place of complete love, complete peace, where the Bible tells us there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. To choose to receive that gift is the most important decision any of us will ever make. I know when I made it, it was in July 1989. I'll never forget that day. It turned my life around. That day is the most important day of our lives. Not our wedding day, if we have one. It's the day that we were reconciled to our Heavenly Father. And we entered into that life in all its fullness, as the Bible calls it, into eternal life. Hope, peace, and joy forever. And it's that decision, that movement from death to life, from darkness to light, from spiritual confusion to spiritual light that symbolises the barrier of sin being washed away. That's what baptism is all about. Why do we have water? It's a washing away of that barrier of sin. And it's about rising to a new birth out of water into someone who knows Jesus as their saviour and knows them as their Lord. It really is amazing grace. So that's our first answer to our first question. What is salvation? Let's move on to our second then. What does working out our salvation really mean? Now I must admit, working out does for me uh, remind me of the gym. I don't know about you, is that the phrase that comes into your mind when you hear that? There's some uh, weights there on that picture. And um, so it just got me back to uh, the days when I was a member of a gym. You might not believe that. I was a member of a gym back in uh, the 90s. Uh, my company, for reasons I don't fully understand, uh, stand off, decided to subsidise membership of the local gym. And a whole load of us thought, well, that sounds good. It's only about £10 a month for us. So uh, I signed up with a whole load of them. And um, a year later, I just uh, totted up uh, how many times I'd been to that gym. Do you know how many times I'd been? Once, Once that's right. <laughs> And that was just to look around. <laughs> I was so scared by what I saw, I didn't dare go back. So a year of guilt was all I got out of that. And, uh, and perhaps the helpful realisation that actually the sort of exercise I preferred was playing football or running around the streets. So uh, that's what I do to keep fit. And the only uh, working out I do these days is lifting up my children. Anyway, that's me and the gym. What I want to say about working out our salvation is that it is not like my gym membership. It's not one of those things where, you know, you you say, well, I'm baptised. You know, I, I've become a Christian, so it's a bit like Tom's gym membership. I just put the card in my wallet and I remain. I remain a Christian. I remain a fully committed disciple because I've got that membership card. I've got that baptism certificate. That's not what it's like. It's the complete opposite of my gym membership. What it means to be a Christian and to work out our salvation is to actually say the status that I've been given when I became a child of God at my baptism or confirmation or whatever moment for you it is, the status I was given then to work out my salvation is to live in in accordance with that status every day. To be today what I was declared then and will one day be in the future when I and all the other children of God enter heaven to be with Christ forever. That's what it means. So, it means living in the light of our salvation now. If we are spotless, blameless children of God, because the Bible teaches us that when we receive that gift of Jesus on our behalf on the cross, God looked at us as he looked at Jesus. Pure, spotless, holy, perfect. That's how we're seen by God now if we've received that gift. And therefore, our calling to work out our salvation is to do our very best to live spotlessly, blamelessly, holy lives. Living out our status. And it means, too, that we remember what we will do, what it will be one day completely. We know that when we see Jesus in heaven, we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. So we are to become now what we will one day be completely. If we are children of God, well then we need to act like children of God. Taking on the family likeness and being his ambassadors to the world. Just like William and Harry need to do now in all that they do. They represent the royal family. That's what we're to do too. We're to represent our king our royal family, and to share the good news of Jesus and to show the love of Jesus. That's our calling, that's our purpose, and that is our greatest joy. So much so that Paul was able to say at the end of that passage, did you see it? Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering, which means even if I die, if my blood is shed, and I die for the sake of the gospel, and what God is doing, I will still rejoice. I will be glad and rejoice. And so too should you, even if you suffer for the gospel with me. To be part of the extraordinary growth of God's kingdom is a privilege. It's an adventure. It's a complete joy. And it's what we're all called to do. And yet, Paul doesn't limit this to a general overall command. He gives specific applications to the Philippians to see what being blameless and pure actually practically means. And last week, we thought about humility and unity as important parts of that. Simon preached brilliantly, didn't he, on that. Today's passage, the key application is in verse 14. I don't know if you noticed it, I'll read it to you again. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Or as several other translations put it, without grumbling or questioning. Now, that's rather disappointing to us bricks, isn't it? Because we like nothing more than a good moan. Is that true? Not just about the weather, the football team, the government, all sorts of things. We love moaning. The trains, the motorways, whatever it is. It's a bit of a national pastime. Now, of course, positive criticism can be a good thing. I certainly benefit from that. I always welcome positive criticism. Criticism, but actually when the Bible talks about this sort of thing, complaining, arguing, questioning, it's not talking about positive criticism. It's talking about negative criticism, things like selfish complaining, unbalanced criticism of small matters, impatience without fully understanding the reasons for a delay, or without fully understanding the reasons why decisions decision's been taken. Now, I guess we can probably all identify times when we have been guilty of that in small ways. I certainly can. But it can become habitual, and it can lead to a much more serious problem. When we find ourselves continuously adopting a critical mindset, when it just becomes a habit, our instinct, where we're always looking for what we can criticize in something rather than affirming or applauding what is good. And when that does become a habit, routine, in the end it divides and damages and destroys communities. And if we read behind the lines of what Paul says here, and what he says in chapter 4 about those two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, it seems that the church in Philippi had a problem with this. This was an issue for them. Whether it was about Paul, I don't know, but it was certainly about each other. There was lots of criticism and arguing going on. Now, why does this happen? Why does it happen? Why do we end up doing this? Well, Paul largely attributes it to self-centeredness. We start to enjoy criticizing others because we subconsciously think it makes us look good. I remember doing that. And we can make people laugh, can't we, by criticizing others? I mean, We can make it look good for us. Um, Also, it deflects attention from our own inadequacies. It's a sort of defensiveness. And there can be a conceitedness involved where we delude ourselves that we can always see the big picture. We can always discern people's true motives when in fact we so rarely have all the information necessary. Now don't get me wrong. I've talked about it because it's in this passage, not because I think there's a particular problem with this at St Paul's. I really don't. But it may be more of a challenge within our families or within our teams at work relationships that may not be so healthy. Just think about, are there things you say about other people that you really, really wouldn't want them to hear? A really good principle is don't say anything to other people that you would not be willing for the person it's about to hear. It's challenging, isn't it? That's about half the things I say. (laughs) I don't think it is, but it, it, it does raise that question, doesn't it? We need to evaluate ourselves. We need to shine the mirror on Philippians 2 on our own critical spirit. And we need to seek greater holiness there in every aspect of our lives. So that's what working out our salvation means. And that's one specific example in community. It's not just our personal holiness. It's how we are with each other, how we communicate, how we evaluate, how we affirm, how we support. And grumbling, questioning, complaining, complaining, Unfair criticism, it destroys it. And actually it destroys us. The devil wants it, God does not. We need to keep seeking that to be taken out of us as God purifies us by his spirit. So we've addressed our first two questions. What is salvation? What is working out our salvation? Our final one then is why would we want to do it? Why should we want to live this way? If we can have the next slide now what's our motivation? What motivates us to live this way, which is so counter-cultural these days, from the way that most other people live? Well, I want to suggest three motivations all taken from this passage. And the first comes from the words that may actually have puzzled you back in verse 12, where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I must be honest, those words, fear and trembling, uh, you know, didn't really resonate with me. And to be honest, it made me think of my childhood and anyone of my sort of age might identify with this. The image that came into my mind where I read those words, fear and trembling, was Scooby-Doo and Shaggy hiding under the table as the next uh, villain appears in, in the cartoon. That sort of... <laughs> it's not exactly the picture that I want to have of my prayer life, is it? So what is Paul talking about there? Well, the good news is he's not talking about that sort of, you know, terror. Actually, in the Bible, the word fear is used in a positive way nearly always, and it normally attached with the word godly fear. And it's a concept that that captures something uh, which we know from what Paul says elsewhere is something that we experience in the context of a loving, intimate relationship with God. In the context where we're free of anxiety, contentment, and peace, that's what Philippians 4 is all about. And where we're full of joy, that's what Philippians also tells us we, we have. So it's something that actually can sit alongside all of those positive emotions. Put all that together, look at the other examples of the word fear used in the Bible, and actually how it should be translated is really reverence, respect, awe, with a healthy dose of gratitude thrown in. One particular commentator put it like this on this verse. This is not the fear of a lost sinner before the holy God, but the fear of a true child before the most loving of fathers. Not a fear of what he might do to us, but of the hurt that we may do to him. Perhaps by failing to fulfill his good purposes for us and by missing out on all of the blessings and good things that he has for us. But if that desire to please our heavenly Father, who's given us so much and loves us so much, is not motivation enough. Well, here's the second found immediately in the next verse, verse 13, where it says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. We work out as he works in. Those two things have to go together. So what does God this tell us then about the help that God gives us? Well, it's brilliant news because it means we're not doing it on our own. We're not doing it in our own strength. Rather, God's power is at work in us, moving us forward to his goal for our lives, not just our ultimate salvation, but also in us becoming more holy and blameless in this life which we will ultimately be completely in heaven. But not only that, but he's actually teaching here that the Holy Spirit will help us in ways that we won't actually have realised. When you think about growing in the Christian life, do you primarily think about it as a work that you do or work that God does? Well, actually, it's mainly work that God does. Our role is simply to cooperate to put ourselves in that place where we're allowing him to work. And this particular verse tells us or gives us two reasons why we fail to become more Christ-like and two ways in which God can help us. One way we fail is we lack the desire. Have you ever been in that situation? You know that you want to grow in your faith, but actually you don't really want to. You lack the desire. What does this tell us? It tells us that God wills in us. He can give us the desire. If you don't have it, ask him for it. Say, God, I want to want. That is a prayer that he loves to answer. And the other way that we can fail to do this is by lacking the ability to put the choices we have made into practice. We may be struggling with perseverance or discipline, or we simply need the support of other people to help us do it. And what does verse 13 tells us? He works in us to will and to act, so he can help us with the implementation as well. He can help us reshape our desires, help us recreate our wills, and yet also transform our ability to put it into practice, to persevere, to be disciplined, to finish what we've started. All we need to do is ask him, be honest. Do you need that help right now? God would be thrilled and delighted to hear that prayer and to respond to it. But now I want to turn our attention to the third and final motivation, and it's the one that provided us with the sermon title today. It's there in verses 14 to 16, and for me, it's one of the most memorable pictures of in the whole of the New Testament of what we are meant to become as Christians. So Paul writes this, verses 14 to 16, in fact. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. For what do Christians do when they are so transformed into Christ's character that they present a dramatic contrast to the world around them? Well, they do shine like, like stars. They stand out. Their distinctiveness becomes obvious. I remember um, about 10 years ago, I was traveling around Australia, and we did what a lot of people do in their backpacking. We went to uh, Ayers Rock. We went to Alice Springs. And what they tend to do there is you travel around in a little minibus. They give you these sort of sleeping bags, and you sleep out in the open. And we all lay there staring up at the Southern Cross, the stars in a clear sky. It was about naught degrees. It was pretty cold. So that's what it's like there in winter, very hot in the day. But as we looked at those stars, it just blew us away. And I certainly thought, God is amazing. But so did a lot of the people there with me. You can't help but say that, to feel that when you see stars shining like that. And the amazing thing is that when we live distinctive lives where our love, our willingness to not put ourselves first, our willingness to stand up for injustice, our willingness to encourage and affirm and not criticise, our willingness to go the second mile, to look out for someone who we haven't seen for a while, to help them out, to give generously, to smile and encourage even people that don't treat us very well. The consequence of that is that ultimately people are going to notice and in their heart of hearts they're going to say there's something different about that person. That person is shining. There's something that is causing them to shine and it's not just willpower. It's not just background. It's not just personality. It must be God. And if we wear our faith on our sleeve and we're open about who we are and what we believe, if we hold out the word of life as that passage taught us to, well, people will ultimately come to no other conclusion than there is a God. He's a God who does great things in these people I've seen, and I want to know him too. I can't tell you just how many people I've baptised, this is adults, this is or confirmed, who in their testimony have said, the reason why I've explored this, the reason why I've done Alpha, the reasons why I've wanted to find out more is because I was so struck by the life of my friend, my mate, my grandmother, my uncle. There was something different about them. And I knew it was something to do with God. And I wanted to make sure that I knew what that thing is. And I wanted to have the chance to be like that too, to know him myself, and as I know him, to discover who I truly am. I want to finish with a a lovely story I heard about um, the statue David and Michelangelo. Has any of you seen that? Yeah, very famous statue. I think it's in the Sistine Chapel just outside. And um, Michelangelo was asked about this sculpture, one of the greatest that's ever been made. And they asked him, how did you know how to make this? How did you do it? And he said, well, I looked at the block of stone and I just carved off all the bits that weren't David. It's amazing, isn't it? Such a simple answer. And that's what God is doing with us. He looks at us. We're all a block of stone. He knows who we have the full potential to become. He knows what the very best, the most good, the most loving, the most other-centered, the most generous, the most compassionate, the wisest the most committed, the most faithful version of us we could be. And through his Holy Spirit, he wants to wash away all that bad stuff, carve it away and allow us to become the very greatest people we could possibly be. We can't do that on our own. But with God, anything is possible. My testimony and the testimony of many hundreds of people in this church is he can do that in you too. Why don't you let him? Why don't you invite him to turn you into the people that he made you to be so that you too can shine like a star? And when people see you and at the end of your life, when they celebrate your life, the words that come into their head will be, wow, God did amazing things. I am so grateful I knew that person. So I want to lead us in a time of silent reflection now. Lots to think about there. I want to suggest that we just take a minute or two just to close our eyes and just think about what we've heard that challenges us and also encourages us. And then towards the end of that time of silence, I'd encourage you, if you feel you can, Just silently to pray a prayer to God in which you just offer your life to him. For him to do in you what he longs to do. Or perhaps simply to offer yourselves to explore this further. To find out more. And then I'll pray for us all at the end. So a minute or so of silence. Take that opportunity to respond. And then I will pray for us all.